Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today's show marks a milestone. It is our 50th episode, and hopefully I'll be doing a lot more of these. But I wanted to start off by thanking all the listeners for their participation and showing me that this was a worthwhile endeavor that people are eager to learn about. So before we get on to today's show, one other quick piece of housekeeping. Uh, I decided it was time for a bit of a brand refresh. So essentially, we are going to be relaunching a new, cleaner, stylish logo, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks, uh, relaunching the website and something a little bit prettier, more modern, and clearly more effort than I put into it in the past. So with that, let's move on to today's show. For today's show, we're doing something different yet again. I decided to do something different for the 50th episode, and I brought back my guest host, Guy Anderson. Guy is going to be interviewing myself yet again on the topic of some of the, what we can only call next-gen technologies that are being implemented today and some of the basic use cases we're starting to see and just how cool and sometimes a little bit frightening they can be. So with that, here's my interview, or here's Guy's interview with me. Hello, Jason. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Guy. Thanks for coming in yet again and 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 basically pinch-hitting for me while I become the victim, I mean guest. <laughs> Happy to be involved, Jason. Good, and thanks. congratulations on your uh, 50th episode. It's great you. to be involved. Thank you. I'm just happy people are listening. Uh, yeah, also be the one that hopefully launches with a new logo, so I'm working on that. So, you know, these things matter, right? So, But thanks for coming in. The subject I wanted to tackle today, um, being, being New Year's and talking about new starts, was some of the really cool things I've seen done um, or being discussed in terms of some kind of almost next-gen technologies. So um, I'll let you basically be the inquisitor. Very good. Let's get going. Um, so one of the things I think we talked about initially was artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, that's a big, broad topic, and it means a lot of different things to different people. So why don't you tell us what you're thinking about in that, in that realm? It does. And we're not talking about Skynet anytime soon. In fact, uh, if anyone who goes back and listens to the conversation I had with... Um, uh, with Responsive AI and David uh, Watchell. Um, he used, like to use the term space jazz a lot uh, in that a lot of the claims are space jazz. You can't play space jazz in outer space. Uh, <laughs> but but essentially, um, the reality is, is that we're starting to see some very basic rudimentary implicate, uh, like basically use cases trickle into the financial services industry. And I've only seen a handful. Uh, to my experience, the ones that have been most interesting, there's two use cases out of Salesforce that have come up. Uh, one was actually, in their financial services cloud, they will actually data mine all the information you have in the system on any particular client. So the everything from if you can put the data on how often they log onto their website to the number of times they call to how much information you have on them to the tonality of the emails that they send you back and forth, they will actually give you a probability score and tell you what the probability of that client either staying or leaving is. So in a, a very simple number, like it, it's a scored out of 100. If your client's a 97, odds are they're going to stay. If the client drops below a certain point, the dial turns red. So it's it's interesting because it has the potential to, as it continues to learn and grow, to basically help you focus on those relationships that are a little bit rockier. Um, so that's the first one. Another interesting one came out of Dreamforce, uh, this uh, this most recent conference. So Dreamforce is the big Salesforce conference in in San Francisco. When I say big, it is ginormous. And one day I'll go to it. Um, I mean, they had Metallica playing this year. It's all the entertainment's insane. But 
the latest one is, you know, everybody hates typing in notes. They, of course, can use voice dictation. So well, they've gone one step further. They're using AI in the dictation app. So you dictate your notes from a client meeting and the AI is scanning for actionable items. So you can say things like, I just had this meeting with this client. I need to process this trade and follow up with them in two days with a confirmation. And I'm going to also book a meeting for lunch in three weeks. And in the meantime, I also need to send them this report. It is literally scanning your voice recording. So not only is it going into being translated into text for your records, it is scanning for the actions and creating the trigger actions. So we're creating the follow-up tasks and if you and delegating them to whomever is responsible for that and potentially triggering automatic tasks as well. So when you think about that, I mean, you're going from a, a process of input, usually manually, maybe verbally, to, hey, it's like telling your assistant to do all that work, but it's basically virtual. Very cool. That's that is very cool. Yeah, I wish they had something like that to to scan on Facebook entries and such like that to see what what uh, what people were up to and you know, what, what sort of activities that we might be able to predict. Yeah, uh, I don't want to get too much into into oversight and stuff like that. But privacy uh, issues. Yeah. But um, so it's interesting because um, in, in the in the space of AI, have you also looked at? Uh, funds and ETFs that are actually run on yeah. algorithms or, or artificial intelligence programs? Yeah, I mean, they claim artificial intelligence. Most of them are just algorithms. I mean, algorithms fall into that sphere to some degree. But all an algorithm is is a, is a formula. And the formula says if X happens, Y happens in, in, in consideration of whatever the other factors are. Uh, and yeah, there's a couple of them. And actually, uh, the guest I mentioned already, Responsive AI, they originally started off as a AI-enabled robo-advisor. And then they basically found that there was more of a market for their AI technology than their robo-advisor market and started, they still, I think they still operate as, an, as a robo-advisor, but they are more consulting on AI and large corporations now they can implement. So yeah, those, those exist. I've even seen a couple of uh, AI iterations of of companies doing some interesting things like basically doing the research for what would traditionally be done by financial advisors. And one that's even crazier, I'm not sure if we mentioned this one before, but a company called, um, oh, I want to say cognitive science, but it's not quite right. Narrative science, that's right. So narrative science, this one's great. You upload a bunch of financial data and it spits out a, a analyst report. Incredible. And I guarantee you, after I read this, I guarantee you, you've read one. Because after I read the end result, I'm like, I am pretty sure I've been fed reports by robots now. Is that right? I swear to God. Like, if you see the way it's written, like, it's not exactly writing Shakespeare or prose or anything like that. But it's like, you know, financial markets are blah, 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 based on this up and down, whatever. And here are the key factors. And But the key thing, one of the cool things about it is you can actually there's some variables in terms of verbiage. So you can basically turn up tonality to be positive or negative or, or more, more minute or more broad speaking to be macro or micro. And you're just like, wow. Like, so, and you think about it, it's one of those things where what's an analyst doing? You know, an analyst is basically taking the end result data and taking the time to write this report. And is that really a high value exercise? It's uh, it's amazing what, uh, you know, what, what jobs might be replaced by robots in the future, right? This, this is very scary stuff. Well, it's scary, but I mean, I, and anyone listening, I would, you know, I would say that if you have a highly repetitive job that is literally just entry or moving things around in a digital sphere or paper sphere, your your job's not long for this world. That's the honest truth. Yeah. So it's interesting with the um, artificial intelligence uh, ETFs and such. I was looking at the the one driven by uh, big blue? No, it's not. No, deep uh, blue. Be, uh, 
Watson. Oh, Watson. Yeah, uh, IBM Watson Both became. Yeah, and, and I compared it to the uh, the S and P five hundred, and it's actually significantly underperformed the, uh, the S and P five hundred. So I don't know. <laughs> the how robots aren't that smart. Yeah, yet. That, that's not the yet. Thing. Not, not yet. yet. Yeah. No. And there are there are a couple, I guess, in Canada. There's one called Mind or something like that in yeah. Canada. But I mean, but still early days. It's typically, I mean, those from what I've seen, they're typically factor-based investing type Yeah, they're all ETFs, rooms, like you said, yeah. Right, and then they just basically throw in that they, they just move faster than humans. But, I mean, you can lump this in with high-frequency trading. It's the same kind of algorithmic stuff that they're doing. Right. Yeah. So I guess that gets into the differentiation between artificial intelligence or algorithm that's really, all this is really driven by humans in the first place. Right? I heard an interesting debate about this and someone basically said that the, the interesting thing about AI is that the bar for what we consider AI just keeps on getting moved further and further along because, I mean, you, you basically show Siri to someone 20 years ago, that's artificial intelligence. Like, let's not kid ourselves. It may not understand everything you say, but it is most definitely artificial intelligence. And yet we take it for granted now as just being almost a trick of our phone, right? So, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we showed people 20 years ago what these algorithms are doing on markets, people are like, oh my God, you have a robot running your running your portfolios. This is artificial intelligence. And we're saying, eh, it's just a bunch of rules. You know, it's just a bunch of algorithms, right? Um, so it, it depends. You know, I think we all have the, you know, we have the far off vision of the autonomous Skynet type, maybe not so evil robot or, you know, call it Astro Boy to be not so evil, whatever it is, but something that is is far more sinister. So, yeah. Well, I just keep thinking back to the 2001 movie, AI, Artificial Intelligence. I never watched it. Like 17, 18 yeah. years ago now. But anyway, moving on to, uh, I think we're going to talk about augmented reality. Yeah, this now, is a funny one. Yeah. Because yeah. Jason, you, like financial services is a, for the most part, it's an intangible uh, experience, right? You yeah. don't get to touch and feel the the thing you're buying. It's not like you're buying a, a computer or, or yeah. a home where you can actually touch it. It's not tangible. So how is it that augmented reality is entering the uh, fintech space? So, so I'm going to first talk about, let's, let's define what it is, and then we're going to talk about what's happening in the space. And then we're going to talk about the very small implementation in, in financial services I've seen, and it's more laughable than not. So augmented reality, unlike virtual reality, where you basically cut yourself off from the outside world with some sort of headset, and you can't see anything other than what's in front of you on a screen, and that replaces more or less your reality. That augmented reality is an overlay. So you would be wearing some form of glasses or something and information would be overlaid for you to read. So I would be sitting here across from you and there would be a little circle around your head and with a little bubble that says, guys, so I can keep your name straight. We're well, we're a while away from that. And, and frankly, this is this is something that every major tech company is racing towards as fast as humanly possible. Because frankly, it's the next, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the phone killer. When you think about it, if you can wear a stylish pair of glasses that has a battery charge all day, whether you need correct lenses or not, your phone is now eliminated. All right. So everybody is is racing towards it because they know it's what could it could, this, it could replace the smartphone. So Apple's very much working on it. Uh, Google had experiments with Google Glass and is very much working on it. Facebook's working on it. Microsoft's um, had their uh, HoloLens project, another company called Magic Leap. We're still a long way off. Power is the big issue, but eventually the, the the functionality of this. When you think about the ability to have digital data overlaid over over top of your reality and everything from something as simple as "Hey, I need to get to the subway station," and you say that out loud, and suddenly you have an arrow in your upper right hand corner pointing you in the right direction, like 
incredible, incredible use cases, right? And even, even something as simple as, even something like repairing a piece of machinery, right? You could literally have the instructions overlaid on top of it, showing you turn this screw, right? So this is, this is the far off dream. We're a long way, a right way from that, hopefully sooner than later. Well, so uh, maybe, maybe there is an application in, in financial services where you can send them documents and it shows them how to enter it or I don't know. Maybe. Potentially, no, but even, even think about the behavioral nudging, right? So it's like, I'm going to walk into Starbucks. Uh-uh, you said you don't want to walk into Starbucks. Look how much you spent last month, right? Like stuff like that or, or comparative shopping, right? Like, you know, app, uh, Amazon, you can scan in a barcode on any, on any, on anything and it'll show you the comparable Amazon price, right? You can walk in, hold up the UPC code and bam, look at that, right? So, and there's already some, I mean, the iPhone's playing heavily in, uh, iPhone and, uh, and iPad are playing heavily in augmented realities of various games. I mean, the first big one was uh, Pokemon Go. You could see your Pokemon on the ground or whatever, but they were still like so early innings. So, so the S for financial services and what I've actually seen done. So uh, e-money out of the U.S. Uh, did a little experiment with augmented reality, and it's kind of like, okay, this is very first principles. And it was basically, um, they're known for their online dashboard, right? So you can see all your financial stuff in one place, and it's, it ties in the financial planning software, all of that. And they basically did a AR version of that. So it was this... This basically, if you wore the AR glasses and you were looking at your desk, you would see these panels hovering above the desk and information changing in real time. And yeah, so it was pretty cool, but it was a bit of a gimmick. Uh, I mean, down the road, it's interesting. I hear that the HoloLens team actually doesn't even work with monitors anymore. They they basically like the monitors are replaced by the virtual monitors that are in front of them. So you think about those applications, it's it's incredible. I just think that taking what was already on your desktop and, and making it hover in real time, that's just a neat thing to try, but it's not functional at this point. Oh, it's all cool. It's all cool. Absolutely. So on to geolocation. Yeah, so geolocation and and people get tripped out by this or or a little bit worried about this because of privacy issues, right? But you know, I think it's important to remember that. Disclosure is everything, and if you're opting into it, that's okay, right? So geolocation, um, many, many applications can tell where you are physically or where your IP address or stuff like that. And that's important for a couple purposes. One, it can be used to verify identities. So DocuSign and a bunch of other signature verification technologies already use that. So they know that if you digitally sign the signature on this date, you're doing it from this place, this IP address. And if there ever needs to be an audit of this, that IP address will be traced back to the place that was signed. So your place of work or your iPhone or your uh, your place, your home. Bottom line is they're using position to verify identity. And that makes sense because if you basically send this off to a client and instead of it basically being signed by the client who lives in Vancouver, it's signed by someone who lives in Kazakhstan, you know that some sort of fraud is involved, not to pick on Kazakhstan. Um, maybe it's Borat. Anyway, so so that's the those are the easy ones. Uh, one of the cooler things, and it kind of, when, I, when this was announced at a conference, uh, the entire advisor population went, whoa, almost as if it was this massive offense. So a Canadian bank, uh, I'm not going to name names, but they basically did a deal with a company called Flybits that does geolocation offering. So in this app, and I've seen it, it's very cool. You have the option to opt in to getting all kinds of offers from your bank. Okay, great. You can opt in. And then one of the options is, would you like us to send, you can send to geolocation marketing and whatever. So you opt in. This is not forced upon you. And they can do crazy cool stuff like this. And the one example that was given to us at this conference that kind of stopped everybody was you're in the, you're in the, the market for a house. You basically go to an open house in your neighborhood and they've cross-referenced all the houses in, on MLS and know that that house is for sale. 
So up, up, up on your phone pops a, hey, are you house shopping? If so, maybe you should talk to one of our mobile mortgage specialists about how we can help you, right? And you know, when you think about that, it's like, ooh, that's, that's a little bit invasive, but you've opted into the invasion. Now, here's the thing. Did they not just provide you something of value? Right. Because you're probably like, I'm going to look into the mortgage thing. I have to. Oh, crap. Wait a minute. You got to have this person call me if I hit this button. That's pretty cool. Click. Right. So, yeah, I guess once you get past the private privacy issues and the scare, the scary aspects of that, um, you're right. It could be a value. What um, so what was that movie that that reminds me of? As, I think it was Tom Cruise is is walking. Minority around. Report. Minority Report. Exactly. Yeah. So he's walking through a hallway and all of a sudden these ads pop up saying, hey, Hey, John, you know. Oh, I, that technology already exists. In fact, uh, before Angela Aaron's left a Burberry for Apple, I was, I remember hearing specifically that they developed these special technological mirrors that essentially you could look at, you can basically, where it was a camera with a screen that essentially you could scroll through different outfits that would be overlaid on top of you. Right. And as you walk by, it would show you stuff like with you over with over that, that dress and whatever the knee area overlaid on top of you. So very cool. And I think I think the message here and this thing is we got to remember is that uh, there's people who are always going to opt out of this stuff every time. And that's that's fine. Uh, it comes down to responsibility with data. And one of the things that we've dis- we've all learned in the last 10, 15 years is that, hey, to use Gmail. I use Gmail. It's free. Guess what? There's a cost. Guess what that cost? Guess what my trade off is? They are able to scan my email and market to me. If I don't like that, I use something else or I pay for a service, right? So I think it's very important that opt-in is the most important thing. But I think also, I think where opt-in fails is plain plain English. Like it needs to be in plain English as to what we're collecting, what we're collecting, why we're collecting it, where the line is. And of course, the ability to basically pull that data and see what people have on you. I mean, you can do that currently with Google and with, uh, with, um, with basically everybody, Google, Facebook, whatever, and pull your entire record. Yeah. So that was geolocation. Free, crazy stuff. Very exciting. But um, one thing I also find pretty exciting is the, the development of voice recognition technology and how it might play into the financial services industry as well. Yeah, early innings on that. Uh, I mean, this kind of also goes into AI as well. And you're speaking to a guy who owns both a, you know, Amazon Echo and uh, Apple um, Apple HomePod. Uh, one of, uh, yeah, I've, got, I've got two Google Homes and an Alexa at home too. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't gone to the Google one. I think my wife might kill me if you had three virtual assistants. Also, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I have my own privacy concerns. I have all of them. I trust Apple the most, uh, Google the least. So <laughs> that's, that's where I sit on that, on that, on that spectrum. And I think uh, Google dropped their do no evil tagline, right? Oh, they so, did. Oh, they did. So, yeah, Which, so, yeah. um, I'm sorry, uh, if you're opting out of that catchphrase, not a good thing. Yeah. So so basically, uh, to date, there are, if you're on the Amazon ecosystem, you've already discovered that if you're scrolling through the different tricks that Alexa can do, you've noticed that, hey, there's some financial institutions on here, right? So what are they giving you? I mean, some of them are giving you like rates on, you know, for deposits if you want. Like they can basically give you information. And you can opt in. In some cases, they give you some very basic information, like balance information, right? Like, oh, what's my account? Hey, hey I'm not going to say it because I'm going to trigger everybody else. Anyone who's in the room listening to this, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll steal something from MacBreak Weekly. Hey, Shlomo, uh, what's my uh, what's my account balance? That's what they use instead of Siri. And and it'll it'll basically respond with your account balance. So yeah, that's great, but. These are tricks, right? This is first generation, right? We're just the first generation stuff is, hey, let's let's take what pre-existed and put it in that paradigm. What really needs to happen, what's going to happen is a re-envisioning of how our relationship with financial services technology is going to change in such that it's enabled through voice communication, right? So not so much pulling reports or asking basic stuff, but 
like functional stuff. Like simply your kid calls you from university. Dad, I need money for books. Okay, okay, kid, whatever. Just stay away from the bars. Hey, Alexa, ignore me. Okay, so hey, Shlomo, uh, send Janie, whatever it is, uh, $500 from my checking account, right? Are you sure you want to do this? Yes, I'm sure. What is your passcode? Here's your verbal passcode. Boom, voice print authentication done, right? Of course, there's security issues surrounding that. We got we to gotta cross. But uh, as the technology becomes better and potentially could voice print you as well, or, you know, even some sort of midway gap where uh, an Apple, uh, you know, Apple's really good at this. You know, you go to use Apple Pay on your computer that doesn't have fingerprint authentication. It pops up on your phone saying, do you authorize this? And you have to use either fingerprint or facial authentication. So there can be a, an in-between. But essentially, yeah, it becomes how do we re-envision our relationship with financial information in our own personal lives into a way that it is not only functional, but useful to you if you were to demand it via voice. Right. So, so you see clients potentially using it in financial services, like you described, pay, you know, sending money, paying checks, you know, paying bills, that sort of thing. On the financial advisor side, I know for, you know, we've had this discussion before, we're already using voice recognition where we can use our series or our Google Google apps and such, and we can tell our phone to call someone, or we yep. can or we can set reminders or or set appointments without ever having to touch our computer, and it yep. goes integrated right into the calendar yep. or whatever. So. Uh, I literally, when I you know when I finish a phone call or have a meeting, I basically schedule. I tell Siri to book a, a book an alarm for one minute before the next meeting, and it literally and that that happens constantly. So I'm never late for these things. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, that's me. I'm pedantic that way. But but yeah. So though, yeah, we've we've all had and the thing is is that we've all been eased into this, right? So I mean, we're all getting used to talking to our phones. There's a generational divide, although I mind you, I think that that, you know, it's, it's very evident because my son loves talking to Siri. He's only four years old. He thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. And I kid you not, I'm almost ashamed to say this, my, my, my 16-month-old daughter the other day pushed the button in my Apple Watch and then started going, because she can barely talk. I was just like, oh my God, this child is growing up in a world where virtual assistants exist on the wrist. Like, think about how crazy that is in the world she's growing up in and how that is that is going to be normal from the moment, from first memories. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, my kids are a little bit older than yours, but, you know, they would walk up to the TV and start touching it, trying to move things around, right? Yeah. I, my son did the same thing at two years old, and I, I kind of I kind of played a dirty trick on him. I put up pictures on the Apple TV, and then, it, and then I swiped when he swiped, and then when it stopped working, he was very confused. <laughs> I, uh, okay. <laughs> Cool yes, man. if you, if you listen cool to this man. years later, yes, daddy can be mean for his own amusement, but he was funny nevertheless. But further on the, the voice recognition stuff, like uh, companies like Manually, for example, if you call yeah. them up, they have a voice recognition system that uh, allows you to you know, validate who you are and access account information, et cetera, right? They do. I mean, personally, I don't like it because <laughs> I've yet to record one and I don't have the time for it every time I call them. But essentially... Yeah, that, that sort of voice print authentication technology already exists. The What's really going to be uh, the game changer is how we start, is how people start to accept it and how we start deploying it against other technologies and start integrating to assistance like this. Uh, because the last thing you want is someone to be over at your house and say, hey, Siri, send, uh, hey, Shlomo, uh, send guy you know, 500 bucks when guys just visiting my house, right? And then, of course, we need voice print. You know, we can, we can build security and it's verbal as well. 
Yeah. Well, I know uh, my firm is, is pretty advanced on the voice recognition stuff, and we're going to be able to pull up reports and do all sorts of things just with a yeah. just with a command of the voice without having to do any programming or anything else. So it's it's yeah. very exciting on that end. Well, the great thing is is that uh, especially anyone who's built off AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, like they've done a really good job of apparently making those APIs very easily, very accessible. So I mean, I was told by one robo advisor that they just held a hackathon and did it overnight, nice. like it was that quick. So. Not bad. It's a matter of it's a matter of what. How do we re envision the use of that? Right. Yeah. So I think uh, fifth out of uh, maybe six six topics is we're looking at data aggregation. Yeah. So data aggregation is uh, is basically the ability to draw all your information from different banking sources, fi- uh, accounting sources, financial planning sources, financial information sources into one place. So this is not. New, like this has been around for a while now. The the big pioneer in this was a company called Mint.com, who basically was the first kind of consumer facing one, and a company that was power be, originally behind them called Yodely that basically provided all the technology. And originally it was very simple, like it would basically take your password, it knew it would basically input your username and password into the site, open up that site, and then just kind of scra- what they would call scrape all that data from the site. So just copying and pasting stuff over into one place. So you can have, if you had three different banks you were dealing with, you would see all this stuff in one place. Uh, eventually, things have gotten better. A lot of places ex- outside of Canada uh, have APIs, which res- which doesn't, which basically eliminates the need for that kind of constant logging in and gives you cleaner data without errors, hopefully without errors. But the cool thing is, so step one was putting it all in one place and giving you information. In, you know, intelligent information, which was fantastic, right? Because you can, and I find, I find I used to recommend it to clients all the time because I would tell them, like, look, budgeting typically doesn't work for most people. But what does work, in my opinion, from my experience, is that just open this once a month. You'll see where your money's going. And you'll start to make judgment calls based on where it's going of saying, I spent how much at this place? I always pick on Starbucks with this one. I'm like, I spent how much at Starbucks? I don't get anywhere near that much value, right? Because you don't see it in the incremental ones. But when you stop and look at it for the course of the year, you're going to start to make choices to not do those things. And that's the feedback I've gotten from clients. Like, I saw how much I was spending there. I said, forget it. I'm going to stop shopping at that high-end grocery store that shall not be named. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I've been using Mint for years. And it's a great great tool to, like you said, once a month you log in to say, oh, my God, I spent that much eating out or I've done that. And rather than creating a budget, for example, for clients. Which is hard to stick to. Which is hard to stick to. But it's also, I think, tedious and and, and time control. And clients oftentimes will miss things. And there's all all the the little day-to-day incremental purchases that people miss out on that would be captured by a mint or so, or some other tool. So it's a really good tool to allow people to give give themselves a shake, you know, let, the, the eyes wide open. This is where my money's going and if there's no money at the end of the day, you know, where can I cut back? Yeah. So that was so that was what we'll call again the first generation. The first generation was putting it all in place. And then uh, you know, in the US, they were fortunate enough to have more open architecture. So a lot of financial planning software started data aggregating as well, which made financial planning faster, which is great. Uh, but now we're starting to see some interesting use cases and people finding smarter and smarter ways to do this sort of thing. So I mean they're being used by uh, one example is they're being used by online lenders and crowdsource lenders like Lending Loop, who was around before. So they basically can and 
create better credit scores based on the fact that they can look at your actual behavior financially, right? So uh, in actually Lending Loop out of the US, uh, there was a study that was done that showed that they actually are far superior to FICA scores in terms of gauging risk. So a bunch of people who would otherwise be ignored by traditional banking are now being able to get, now able to get lending from at, at reasonable rates because their default rates were actually a lot more, a lot better than people thought they were going to be. So those FICO scores were took in certain data. This one's taking another data. One of the other interesting, some of the other interesting applications. And there's several. I've talked to financial institutions who basically, you know, one of the things that every advisor has been through is screw ups on transfer forms. Right? You're trying to move an account from one place to another. Right? So you know, maybe it just comes down to the 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 you got the account number wrong, or you got the you got something wrong in the entire form. Uh, or the assets. You didn't realize that they, well, anyway, point is, is that the mistakes happen. So one of the things that data aggregation is being used for now is the ability to pull the account information that's necessary to populate a a transfer form and fully pre-populate the transfer form to reduce the error rate. Oh, yeah. And when when you reduce the error rate, then it speeds up the the processing and it improves the client experience. Absolutely. And now you're seeing a bunch of um, some of the robo-advisors and some of the other kind of savings vehicles out there that are really using this really inventively. And I think many banks are going to be fearful of this. Doing things like, uh, you know, Well Simple was on, the, was on the show before. They've done two really great things I, that I love. And it's not that they're exclusive to them. They've, other people who have been on the show have done the same thing. Uh, one of the things is called Roundups. And uh, Coho also does this. So basically, and it's, it's been around forever. It's a behavior real finance things. So basically you don't notice small incremental savings. So you go to Tim Hortons in Canada, sorry people. So um, you go there and you spend 225. It will round up to the next dollar. So 75 cents will basically then go from your account to your savings account, high interest savings account typically. They don't go to anything too risky. So all they're doing is they're rounding up every every time you go spend money, maybe it's 99 cents, maybe it's one penny, but it's always getting rounded up to the next dollar. And that money is going is forcing savings. And before you know it, the, again, now it's taking it out of your, your spending account, right? So you're basically, you're not seeing it, right? So essentially it's just this, it's just forced behavior. So, but the thing is, is that they used to be limited to banks who held the money in the first place. Now you have robo-advisors who are basically scraping that data daily, looking at all those transactions, calculating the amount, and then transferring that yeah, money because you've authorized right out of the bank into their absolutely own yep. brilliant. That's great. Right. So think about how that technology, when applied to all financial advisors, financial advisors will be able to use those same kind of behavioral tricks. Right. The other one that they've done recently, to which I basically almost stood up and applauded when I saw it. I'm sure it's not theirs, so they copied it, but nevertheless they implemented it. They basically created something called overflow. So essentially, you know, we've all had it. Clients. You know, we've all had the clients say, oh, if the money shows up in the bank account, I'm going to spend it unless I do something with it quick enough, right? So basically, most people get a paycheck, but every now and then they build up more cash than they need to, right? And traditionally, we advisors will, good ones at least, will call around to advise to clients on a regular basis. And if we're doing some due diligence, we'll talk about their level of cash and see if if they basically are at the right level. In which case, hey, you know what? You're sitting on more than you probably should. Let's fund your XYZ with this as per the plan or because you come into this one fall, let's put you further ahead, whatever it might be. So basically what happens there is that you can set it a limit on how much cash you should have. So say you're comfortable having $10,000, $5,000, whatever it is in your account. What happens is this robot will check your balance on a daily basis. And if you're beyond that threshold, guess what? Scoop, 
move. Automatically pulls in. Automatically pulls in, right? And you know, we coach, especially clients in retirement. Like I typically have the habit of saying, okay, I would rather you have more cash in your account than you need and I take it back. So we typically have the withdrawals come out. They're in excess of necessary living expenses. It gives them a sense of comfort. But I kid you not, every quarter, you know, they're like, okay, I have more than enough. Should I transfer a balance to you? And we talk about their expenses. And if they have nothing else coming up, then yes, we'll have them transfer it back, right? So it may not be the most efficient way, but it's it, but, but it gives them the comfort. And you think about the ability to just mechanize that and have it automatic, like fantastic. Fantastic. And then you're starting to see a lot of this stuff. You think about how that opens up the door for various nudging behavior, right? That that is that is fan, that that you can start uh, start pushing out, and not only that, but the nudging that can be done both on internal accounts and external accounts. There's one that was internal that kind of not a data aggregation piece, but something really cool that um, that Betterment out of the U.S. did, and it was um, basically they they would calculate an taxable account on a down market. That was if you were going to trigger rebalancing, it would calculate how much you had to contribute in order to, to basically not rebalance because they would then re, they would rebalance by allocating the cash, right? So what would happen is is that they would monitor this information. Market goes down. It's going to trigger rebalance. Hey, guy, did you know that we're going to rebalance? Okay, yeah, markets are down. Sucks. Rebalancing is a great thing, or markets are up either way. Rebalancing is a great thing. Here's why. Blah 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 blah. But it triggers tax. That's the downside. Right. So. Instead of you us triggering tax, why don't we get further ahead? If you put an extra X number of dollars in this account, we can just use cash to rebalance and not trigger any taxes. Think about it, think about the nudge that creates. That's, that's great. Uh, that's, I love that word nudge because yeah. that's that's a that's a great tool of, of uh, yeah. the technology because we can only physically speak to one person really at a time from yep. from a, from but, a privacy standpoint. Absolutely, but. The technology that we're talking about today, yeah, the nudges, yeah, that takes a, you know, that takes a lot of the work off the table and, and pushes client yeah. clients into better behaviors. But think about too how you can match that with fitness. With, with, sorry, with um, with with the data aggregation, right? So let's say you set bar- barriers, right? Like I want to have no less than five thousand, no more than ten, somewhere in the middle. But I'm only going to do the overflow at ten. However, will I authorize it to take up to five thousand dollars if it's going to be for a rebalance? Right. Yeah, I might take that because then that lowers my tax bill, right? So you think about the ability to drive all kinds of nudging behaviors on one end with the actual actions in the book. In the in the book, it's it's pretty fantastic. But again, early innings. So so data aggregation can be, you know, we're talking really at the individual level, right? Mm-hmm. But data aggregation can be done on a uh, like a client base level or an entire population and as such yeah. too, right? Because as long as you have access to the data, you can pull whatever. I mean, right. it's a matter of access rights. So to your point, because you were, were you know, I guess the two topics kind of meld together, but the artificial intelligence and data aggregation, they, they, there's a lot of a lot of lines that could cross there. But in terms of uh, what you're talking about, behavioral factors, etc., I think it's betterment in the U.S. That, that was really doing a lot of work in the robo space there, mm-hmm. where they're looking at the data uh, of certain clients, the behaviors of certain clients, and then they compared it to other clients. And they looked at the, you know, if if clients responded to, you know, down markets, what did they do? If What, yeah. what do you do when you send out a letter to them? Or yeah, well, simple the same thing. So well, basically, the thing. if there's a market downturn, you know, you say like the traditional way to do it is to basically say, hey, we know markets are bad. Don't worry. Hold steady. And that would inevitably trigger clients saying, what do you mean markets are bad? Oh, my God. How much have I lost? Exactly. Right. And so they would look at behavior. And this is not data aggregation. This is behavior. Like how many times did you log in? during this market downturn, okay, here's the message. Uh, so not to panic people. And so, and the other thing about data aggregation is I think we've looked at it predominantly from 
you know, the banking and investment side thus far. And we probably haven't touched insurance because infrastructure there is even worse. But I look at some of the other stuff that I've looked, I've contemplated and some of the, one of the things we built. Uh, I previously mentioned that we built a Salesforce data scraping tool, based data scraping tool for tax information on the Canada Revenue Agency website. So it goes in and pulls contribution room information, tax information, all kinds of stuff that is usually valuable to us at the touch of a button once the client's authorized us as an agent. So, I mean, that is something that's traditionally fallen out Outside the data aggregation realm, but provides value and is something that is also there. And one of the other things that I, one of the other pieces of data that we're constantly missing, and data aggregation misses altogether, is that they always see the net deposit of what goes in the account. What about the gross amount earned, right? We're always having to ask for, for pay stubs and everything else, right? I look at it, I look forward to a day when most payroll systems now have online portals. Why are we not linking up and scraping data from the online portal as to, hey, here's your top line revenue. This is what you paid in taxes, whatever uh, contributions to your to your registered or qualified accounts. this is what you put into life insurance, and this is what you're doing, the CPP. Boom. It's all there, yeah. right? And then think about what that does. That enables the client to, on a dashboard view or whatever it might be, to actually see where they stand on their tax bill at any given point, right? And you can even start doing things like factoring in, hey, I donated this much money to share, like there is a charitable contribution, bam, it's flagged, right? That adjusts, right? So you think about the ability to potentially in the future, literally calculate taxation in real time. Well, that, that'd be fantastic because I would take away my tax performance stuff, like when I do tax analysis yep. in terms of uh, projections, you know, mid-year yep. just to show clients where they stand, et cetera, so there's no big surprises at the end of the year. Knowing real time where they are without any effort, that's going to be amazing. Absolutely, right? And if we pair it, yeah, exactly. We pair that with, with account level information. Again, we're going to need good data for that. Uh, we, we pair that with the, we get the payroll information. We can literally start to put, the, I mean, picture, theoretically, we're in a, the possibility in a few years out is that your end of the year happens, the tax reporting period comes, and the data is already populated. Yeah, the data right? goes right into your tax right. return. The CRA already does that anyway, right? To a degree, yeah. I mean, you can get, and this is the thing. So all in Canada, all the tax slips are reported to the central authority before, after after the year's over, but before a certain deadline, and that's before the tax deadline, right? So one of the things I'm contemplating in the future iteration of that data scrape is pulling that data as well, right? For that is their very same purpose. I mean, it would be different because we learn, because that's at the end of the year, we want to do this in real time so that we have a real time view of it. But I mean, the ability to actually have that, and then think about this, you can then, you can then theoretically you can theoretically check the data that you've aggregated versus what the country, the government has reported and verify that the, the accuracy of it. Right. And, and literally the average person who's, you know, sorry, HNR block, I think your future is not looking very, very, very great in this technological world. But frankly, the average person who doesn't have a corporation is just a simple, you know, W2 or T4 employee, again, two different countries, US, Canada, frankly, like they don't have complicated tax situations and they're not paying much for tax service because frankly, it's, 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 fill in the blanks, right? If we can fill in those blanks in real time, yes, yeah, so long, so long as they don't have like lots of medical expenses, et cetera. But even those medical expenses, we're basically, you, you're, you're paying for them. So guess what? They're there, right? And if, if, if the government wants proof of like a, a charitable donation receipt, well, okay, charity, you donated to this children's hospital. Okay, great. Reminder, can you please e if email or attach the receipt for that so we have a record? Right. Boom, doable. Right, so H and R Block. If you're not developing this kind of technology in the background, TurboTax might be kicking your butt pretty soon. <laughs>
anyway, in a different way. So yeah, so I mean, it, it really, when you start thinking about data aggregation is a powerful tool because we've used the very first principles today. Now you're starting to see some people who are using it to action other items and you start thinking about other data and how we can populate other needs and meet other needs. It just opens up a, a huge opportunity in the future. Yeah, it's going to simplify a lot of lives. It's, it, it's incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about the amount of friction or work that's put upon us by tax authorities and everything else, and it's it's work. It's a pain. This is why people don't comply or like they wait years to file stuff. Well, let's we have the technology to make it easier and and make it better and more accurate. Good stuff. Uh, and I think you wanted to talk about fitness tracking. Yes, I'm not sure is, how that fits in. With, yeah, uh, so this with is fintech, but I have an idea. But it I'll does. See if I'm right. I'll see if I'm right. Yeah, you're probably right because you probably heard about this. So um, this is kind of a big data play. So fitness tracking is taking on a trend, and I will say a Canadian company by the name of Manulife Financial has been kind of or at the forefront of this. And they also uh, they also know specific specifically on top of that they also own a division in the U.S. Uh, John Hancock Financial. So people are familiar with that name in the U.S. But they will issue you a fitness tracker at the time that you sign up for an insurance policy, and you will basically just like some of those car insurance commercials, a similar same premise, based on your habits and activities, they will basically give you discounted rates on behavior. So if you're walking so many steps per day, they will keep your rate lower. Uh, if you're going to the gym because it's geolocation based and you check in, guess what? You you basically not you basically get to keep that lower rate. So if you achieve a certain number of points throughout the period of time based on behavior, your rate stays preferential. If you decide that you're going to sit on the couch, watch football, eat pork rinds, and not move for weekend for days on end because, or maybe let's call it the final. Let's call it the the the, the final four tournament because that goes on for weeks. <laughs> if you decide you're going to take it off for the final four, that may hurt your premiums, right? And it's when you think about that, okay, you're again you're opting in. It's not invasive because you're opting in. And the other thing too is they nudge you with other behaviors, so they reward you. They they incentivize you with like gym memberships and whatever else. So there's it's just again it's actually helping you lead a higher a better lifestyle. And I remember reading a press release recently that said that Jan. Jan Hancock now is by default in the U.S. issuing fitness trackers with all of their new applications. Fantastic. Uh, and in Canada, it's not quite by default. And if you don't like the fitness tracker they have, they have a discounted rate for an Apple Watch if you achieve a certain level of fitness first. So wow. it's and pretty the, cool. And the Apple Watch in the States is FDA approved. I don't think it's approved here in Canada yet, right? Uh, no, not yet. I think I think we're, we're the time we're talking right now, which is mid-December, I think the ECG just came out in the US. I'm waiting for it in Canada. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, it's it, it's similar to, you may have seen those car insurance uh, commercials where they have the little little device that goes in your glove compartment or gets, gets tied into somewhere. And essentially it will... It's like a little black box that tells how fast you're going yeah. and such. Either, you know, either, either how plugs fast into your, you break, et cetera, yeah. yeah. Plugs into your diagnostic port or whatever it might be. Uh, it was funny. I was listening to a tech commentator talking about how she thought this was wonderful until after the first month, uh, it reported back to her saying she was in the bottom 5% of all drivers. So guess what? You're not getting a discount. But again, it's it's you know you think about the previous world, which was, hey, you know what? An application goes in. It's a snapshot in time. The person may or may not be telling the truth, and you have medical records from that point, but just like insurance policies, you know, if you don't smoke at the time of application but start smoking after, you're still a non-smoker, yeah. right? Because they can't, odds are you're not going to do that. Well, you're in great shape. Well, let's see you stay in great shape for the next 10 years. And if you do that, we're going to reward you. Fantastic. So, so, so I, I was right. Is that called vitality or mainly life calls it vitality? I'm not sure what John Hancock calls it. Yeah, um, I think it's a South African company, isn't it? That they've that they've partnered. Yeah, with? it definitely wasn't. Uh, I don't think it was invented by them. I think they just yeah. adopted it first. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it advertised on some uh, some FIFA boards and stuff like that. Or 
whatever. Anyway, I have seen that. Maybe it's, maybe it's the wrong one. And the watching of soccer. But that's fascinating. So we've touched on six pretty exciting uh, technologies. Yeah. All of which have a connection to, to financial services and uh, obviously. Even fitness tracking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's been exciting. I look forward to uh, 2019 listening to the rest of your podcast from here. Right. And again, thank Jason, you. thank you for, for involving me and congratulations on 50 successful podcasts. Well, I thank podcasts. you. And, uh, I hope they're all successful and except for the ones I'm, I'm speaking. And, uh, you know, I can't talk to myself. So thank you for being the, uh, the guest host. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I'm excited to see is is some of the stuff we're talking about actually come to reality and make my clients and my life better. So, great. Well, it's probably sooner than you think. Knock on wood. We'll see. The AI stuff, probably not. But the rest of it, hopefully. Very good. Well, All have right. a great year, Jason. Thanks. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. So that was my conversation with Guy. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, I hope some of the topics uh, we discussed were both eye-opening and hopefully mind-expanding in terms of what you believe or understand is possible in the future. So... As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, if you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening. This is Jason Pereira, and this is Fintech Impact. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.